VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I think the problem that exists in society is that people associate kindness with weakness. And the reason that happens, Alan, is that people confuse kindness with being nice. Now, you can be nice and be passive, but if you're kind, it requires enormous amount of strength. It requires the strength of a protagonist. And kindness also requires enormous amount of honesty. A nice person might not give you feedback because it's not nice to tell you that you have something between your tooth or that you did something wrong. A kind person has the courage to tell you you have something between your teeth. That's Daniel Lubetsky. He founded the multi-billion dollar company that makes the nutrition bar Kind. The name Kind was inspired by his father. His father was a Holocaust survivor. But the word kind is also the driving force behind a national project called Starts With Us. It's founded on the idea that being kind, especially in today's fractured society, requires three things. Curiosity, compassion, and courage. Daniel, this is really wonderful for me to be able to talk to you on on the podcast. One of the smallest things about you that makes you fascinating is you took a $10,000 investment and turned it into a multi-billion dollar company. One of the big things about that is you built the whole thing on kindness. You named the company Kind. You know, we named the, the company Kind after my father because he was a Holocaust survivor, Alan. And even though he went through horrors, at Dachau concentration camp and before and just saw the world with so much warmth and saw every human being as someone to befriend and to give them a smile. And when we were trying to come up with a name for what would be became kind, we were looking for a human adjective that met the three pillars of what our brand was going to stand for, which was being kind to your body, to your taste buds and to your world. That's the same year, Alan, that my dad passed away. And so he was very front of mind and his persona and his um, sense of who he was very much informed us. But I would say that for us, you know, you're talking about turning a $10,000 investment into success. I think it's important to point out that there were 10 years before Kind started becoming a success 
where had run the prior company Peaceworks, out of which Kind was conceived with a ton of failures, a ton of mistakes. We were exhausted from so many mistakes that we almost we almost threw in the towel. I was almost hoping that my team members would say, all right, let's just go close this thing down. But everybody said, all right, let's give it one more shot. And then you look back and I almost didn't launch Kind. Let me go back even a little, a little earlier to the beginning of PeaceWorks. When you started PeaceWorks, you were in Israel, and it was, am I right about that? And it was after you had become a lawyer? Back in 1989, I wrote my college thesis at Trinity University on the influence of economics in resolving the Arab-Israeli conflict. And that was before the Camp David peace accords. So a lot of people thought I was totally crazy to suggest that you could use economic cooperation to bring Palestinians and Israelis and their Arab neighbors together. But then after the 93 process, I got a fellowship to go to the Middle East, to go to Israel. And I spent some time there in, in Egypt and the Palestinian territories and Jordan, thinking how to turn my ideas into an actual company. Hmm. So I was in the Middle East when I conceived the idea for what became PeaceWorks. But then I came to the United States to to run it out of the U.S. while my partners were running the Middle East aspects. So am I right that it, I mean, I love this, I love the vividness of this story. One night you were eating a jar of sun-dried tomatoes and you said, I got to get more of these. Yeah, so what happened is I was uh, in my apartment in Tel Aviv doing research and I was on this fellowship. And the truth, Alan, is that I had another failed venture in my hands uh, you you tend to forget, and society tends to forget all the things we do wrong, but somehow I love remembering them because they remind me of what to do right. I had created something called the Middle East Trade and Investment Center, and I was trying to provide advice to Israeli and Palestinian and other Arab countries and, and companies on how to foster joint ventures. And they all would look at me weird. I'm like, you're like this confused Mexican-American Jew trying to tell us how to work together. And so I got a total of zero dollars in engagements from Metic. But as I was doing this research and, and writing a legislative proposal for the U.S. Congress on how to foster these joint ventures, I went to the supermarket uh, on Gordon Street and I bought was, was this obscure-looking jar of sun-dried tomato spread. And in 1993, Alan, sun-dried tomatoes were not as popular as they are today. I had never seen one in my life. And I downed the jar. The stuff was so delicious. I ate it with pita. I ate it by itself. It was so good. I went back to the supermarket for more. And I couldn't find the product. And I finally talked to the manager and he told me the company had gone out of business. And I kept thinking about that product. And I finally, like, it took me a while, but I finally connected the dots. And I'm like, wow. This product is so good and nobody in the United States has ever tried something this delicious. And from the research I was doing, I knew that the farm sector, the food sector was one of the few places where there was cooperation taking place and where there was complementary comparative advantages where you could have equal cooperation among Arabs and Jews. And so I went back to the manager and asked him to give me the phone number for Joel Benish, who was the founder of this company that had just gone out of business. And I got a hold of Joel and I met him at his empty factory because they had taken all of his equipment. The place was empty. And I told him about my crazy ideas and he didn't have anything to lose because he had just gone out of business. And uh, and also he was a dreamer like I, and he really 
cared about this. And he had, uh, his father had uh, friendships with Palestinians and he understood the importance of building those bridges. And that's how we started. Prior to my coming into the picture, they were buying everything from abroad. Like Joel was buying his sun-dried tomatoes from Italy and his glass jars from Portugal and everything was very expensive and not fresh. And I showed them that we could source the sun-dried tomatoes from Turkey and they had very high quality sun-dried tomatoes in Turkey, buy the glass jars in Egypt and buy the olives and the olive oil from Palestinian farmers, both uh, West Bank Palestinians and uh, Arab citizens of Israel. And we ended up finding ways to source locally and we reduced the prices we increased the quality and the freshness, and we gained friendships between this Israeli entrepreneur and his Arab, Turkish, and Palestinian counterparts. Now, here's the part that, to me, makes you so unusual. You had this idea, you brought these people together, and I've heard you say that 25 years later, the relationships between the Jews and the Palestinians that you brought together is still strong. But the part that gets me is how indomitable you were. Is it true that you walked in Manhattan from the top of Manhattan to the bottom, stopping at stores, showing them your product and trying to get orders, and then turned around and walked back up to the top again? And then you deliver the, the product to them the next day? Yeah, I, I didn't know better. I really, I think that a lot of that <laughs> indomitable character sometimes is that young people, first of all, we have a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of energy. Second, I was so fueled by this purpose and by this passion and by this mission. But yes, I would start at, you know, sometimes at 5 a.m., sometimes at 7 a.m., up on 122nd Street and Broadway. And I would go down... And sometimes I would crisscross and then sometimes I would go from one side of the street and then go up on the other side of the street, depending the uh, volume of grocery stores there were and whether it was faster to walk down the street or across the street. So I was walking down from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. taking orders. I mean, we're talking about like $300 in orders after the entire day. I mean, I was not doing a great job. And a lot of times I was getting rejections, but then I would befriend the guys and I would tell them, what am I doing wrong? And then they would teach me. I, everything I learned about this business, I learned from my friends that were the retailers, that were the shopkeepers. And they would say, well, your pricing is all wrong and your packaging is all wrong. And this product is too oily and this product is too this. And, and then I would go back and fix it. And six months later, they thought I was never going to show up again. And I said, well, you told me if I did A, B, and C, you would take my order, give me an order. So <laughs> here I am. They couldn't avoid me. But I also, I, I also didn't know what I was doing. And I would sometimes spend two hours driving this poor owner of a small Korean convenience shop. And he would tell me, you know, my customers don't come for sun-dried tomatoes, but they come for toilet paper. They come for, you know, milk, for essential staples. And I'm like, sir, you have to try this. It's about peace in the Middle East and the product is delicious. And I would like open the jar and force feed the poor man. <laughs> and literally, I remember this uh, encounter very well because he literally could not 
avoid me. And I, I had convinced myself that I had to land a sale with this, with everybody that I went to because that for me at that point was success. So the gentleman literally went down to the basement to avoid me, to escape me because in some <laughs> Asian cultures, you can't say no, or leave me alone, you nudnik. And I went down to his basement and followed him. And he finally gave me like an order for $24 or $36. And I came outside um, of that store and I said, yes, Daniel, that's how you're going to succeed because, you know, you have that grit. And then a week later, I walked by and not one of those jars had sold. By the way, I want to say to any of your audience that's that's listening, Alan is laughing every, for the last two minutes. So I'm enjoying that a lot. <laughs> he, keeps, <laughs> he keeps laughing. This is a great story. But uh, So what, you walked by, not one had been sold. What did you not do? Not one had been sold. And a month later, not one had been sold. And six months later, not one had been sold. And they had all this dust accumulated over them. And I learned my first lesson that grit is not enough, that, you know, you need wit also. You need to know what you're doing. You can't just try to put the product anywhere. You need to, to learn to put it in the right places because in our industry, in the consumer packaged goods space, it's not about pushing the product into a store. It's about ensuring the pull from the consumer. So the initial sale, relatively speaking, is the easier one. You need to get the consumer to pick the product from the shelves. And the magic is in tying demand and supply and knowing how to get the product to get its own lift off. Well, you did the same thing with Kind that you had done with the uh, sun-dried tomatoes. Tell me if I'm wrong about this. I, what I heard was you went to every single Whole Foods store in the country. Not every single Whole Foods, but probably a good 50% of them. But Alan, it was not the same. It was 10 years of lessons, so I did it better. So I was much more strategic. At Peace Rocks, it was sell to anybody that was breathing. Yeah. And and consequently, I literally got my Moshe and Ali Tome, Moshe Pupik and Ali Mishmunkan's world-famous gourmet foods into Bloomingdale's and Macy's, as well as the convenience store. And it just made wait, wait, sense. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Your name of the company was Pupik Analysis? No. The, the, sounds the very name meditative. Of the, brand, the name of the company is Peaceworks, but our, our, our flagship brand was Moshe Pupik and Ali Mishmunkan's world-famous gourmet foods. And <laughs> That's a snappy I, title. I, well, I thought it was going to be so silly that yeah. everybody would like, wouldn't be able to stop talking about it. But no, everybody avoided <laughs> it like the plague. Nobody wanted to ever talk about it. So that's how I came up with kind. Like next time I was like very succinct. You mentioned someplace that selling that product as a way to make peace wasn't as successful as selling it as a delicious piece of food. Yeah. I think one of the things I learned from many of my mistakes is that when I was emphasizing the mission, people would nod. And like, let's say I was at a street fair in New York City with my little booth uh, trying to sell my products. And I would talk about the mission because I was very excited about the mission. And everybody would nod. And, you know, this old lady would try to set me up with her daughter, but nobody <laughs> would buy anything. And when I started talking about the features of the product, that's when uh, it started wearing that. I, I learned that you need to win on the merits of the product. It has to have the right price point, the right quality, the, it fit the right value proposition for the consumer. And the social mission is a very important reason to believe, to give me fuel, to get others excited. 
but it cannot be first and forefront. The first and forefront is competing on the merits of the particular category where you're um, trying to win. And that's sort of aligned with what I've heard you say about brand, that brand is a promise that you make. Yeah. What I, what I, this one's not mine, Alan, but I've been using it for so many years and nobody's taking credit. And I don't know who to give the credit to, but I heard it from somebody some 20, 30 years ago that a brand is a promise and a great brand is a promise well-kept. Meaning that a brand, if it's a good brand, it says something to the consumer. This is who I am. This is what I, what you can expect from me. It can be a value brand or a premium brand. It can be savory or salty. It can be healthy or indulgent, but it has to stand for something. If you end up trying to be everything to everybody, you end up being no, nothing to nobody. So you need to really set the right guardrails and then be very careful that you maintain that brand that you're true to the value proposition so that the consumer can know what to expect from you. When we come back from our break, Daniel Lubetsky tells me how he developed his project Stands With Us. Its goal is to provide tools that promote kindness, a robust kindness that emphasizes curiosity, compassion, and courage. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is to stimulate scientific research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience to strengthen the relationship between science and society, and to honor scientific discoveries with the Kavli Prize. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? more confident, capable surgeons, and even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Daniel Lubetsky. So you've taken the basic idea of kindness and spreading it and turned it into a new project called It Starts With Us. What's the mission there? Well, first of all, I want to thank you for being one of our partners. Uh, we have 200, close to 200 movement partners, uh, including Alan Alda and other incredible leaders in society across music and arts and humanitarian work. You have Chef Jose Andres and uh, chess expert Gary Kasparov and... Erskine Bowles and Carl Rove on the same board across the spectrum of politics and musicians like Will I Am and incredible business people like Mark Cuban. And they're all 
coming together with a recognition that we as a country are not moving in the right direction because of the growing polarization and dehumanization and tribalization. And while many of the factors aggravating and causing these fissures are divisive cable news networks and social media algorithms that make us think we're always right and divisive politicians, ultimately society dies or thrives based on the daily habits of of its citizens. Every single person ultimately as a whole makes who we are. And if we treat each other with kindness, if we're a little bit more forgiving and a little bit less judgmental, if we're a little bit more curious, more compassionate, more courageous, then we're going to bring back the best of what America has done since its founding. And if we instead allow ourselves to start developing all these terrible habits of just trolling one another and canceling one another and not listening and thinking our side's right and the other side is evil, we're going to get into very serious historic trouble. I get the impression you're still developing your strategy. Can you can you talk about at this point how much strategy you've evolved yet? What we're doing thus far is creating content that's provocative, that's interesting, and that helps our community develop a toolkit, a set of skills to become more effective in life. Because if you develop curiosity, compassion, and courage, you create the type of culture. These daily habits are not just essential for the proper running of a democracy. They're also essential for an entrepreneurial economy and for a good household. And they're they're what makes us the best that we can be, curiosity, compassion, and courage. You know, one of the things that we're evolving to do is to try to play with how to be more relevant in people's lives. So we have a lot of very exciting methodologies where we're going to try to build a movement where citizens are actually solving problems. So I strongly encourage anybody that's listening to sign up to join It Starts With Us because we're coming soon to provide you some amazing ways that you can be part of very concrete solutions. How do we do that? Just search online for Starts With Us. You can go to our website, startswith.us, and enter your email. I think that would be my number one recommendation. We put out a really good newsletter once a week that I think has a lot of really good tidbits and a lot of good content from a lot of inspiring people. And or you can sign up on our different social media platforms uh, at Starts With Us. So the initial target audience is everybody, individuals. We definitely want a movement that is representative of citizens. So there'll be conservatives and progressives, rural and urban, young and older. Like we, we want to really be representative of society. So we're, we're trying to kill them a movement of people who are committed to live life by the three C's and to identify and encourage others to be catalyzed by that same approach. You know, you make me think of the following. I can imagine that people would say, well, okay, I can get a few tips about how to change my daily habits and act on kindness, but it's not going to help when I'm up against somebody totally intransigent. And what, what you remind me of is the story of your father when he was, I think, nine or 10, and the superintendent of the building, his father and family, including your father, 
lived in, and he was a bad guy who nevertheless turned out to have been moved by kindness. Tell that story. The war started when my dad was around nine, and at some point when he was, I don't know, around 10 years old, the superintendent told him, are you hungry? And my dad said, yes, I'm hungry. And he said, come, I'm going to show you where there's some food. And he brought him downstairs and pointed him to a pile of dead bodies. And he said, here, these are Jews. Why don't you take a you know, knife and cut a piece out of them? You can eat whatever you want. So this guy was a clear, bad human being, right? He was a jerk. At some point later, the paramilitary forces rounded up all the Jewish families and had them all fusillated, assassinated, like shot against the wall. And when they brought my family downstairs to be exterminated, the superintendent whispered to the paramilitary leader, the paramilitary leader left with his people, and then the superintendent turned to my grandfather and told him, I'm sparing you because you were kind to me. I just told these guys to leave because I remembered that every day you looked at me with respect and you shook my hand and you treated me kindly. During the holidays, you gave me a bottle of snaps and just always treated me like a human being. So I'm sparing your life, but leave before I change my mind. So for me, Alan, the reason this story speaks volumes to me and it it stays with me in a very harrowing way is first and foremost, because I live, I exist here today because of the kindness of someone that you would consider a monster. But most important, because that person in the darkest of moments rose up to show a modicum of humanity. And for me, the lesson is every human being has the capacity to do better and to be better. And the work we do every day to build bridges matters enormously. And to your earlier point, Alan, I think it's true. I think that it's true that the challenge is daunting because extremists are very loud and moderates by our nature, we're not jerks and we're not so loud. And the social media platforms of today help amplify the loudest, most scandalous voices. But the reason why we will win, without any doubt, is because we're the overwhelming majority. We're somewhere between the 87% that our data shows that is exhausted by what's going on, and the 95 or 98% that my gut feeling tells me is people that can rise to, to, to be kind to one another and that are fundamentally part of the solution, not part of the problem. It might even be higher. And we don't have another option. But it's going to take every single one of us doing our little part. Well, I tell you, I'm moved to hear you talk like this. And I'm also moved to hear what you've accomplished in the past and how you're able to apply the lessons you've learned, both the successes and the failures, to get further each time you initiate a new project. You have personal charisma that's amazing. I mean, I, I can see how you can lead a bunch of people in a company or in a movement like this, very effectively. To get more lighthearted about a very serious subject, I've seen you some once in a while on Shark Tank, and you apply these same principles on Shark Tank. You're, you're there as much to find an investment, 
maybe even less than you are there to help these people, these young entrepreneurs function better, get a better hold on what they've got. Yeah, I, I get the impression you're more like the porpoise in the shark tank. <laughs> uh, you know, I do think that I'm in this world, first and foremost, to build bridges. I think the problem that exists in society is that people associate kindness with weakness. And the reason that happens, Alan, is that people confuse kindness with being nice. Now, you can be nice and be passive. You can be nice and just stand by. But if you're kind, you, it requires enormous amount of strength. It requires the strength of a protagonist. A, a nice person doesn't cause problems, but a kind person has to solve the problems. A nice person will not bully, but they can just stand back. A kind person needs to stand up against the bully. A nice person, if you're having a bad day and you're walking, the nice person might just leave you alone. The kind person will have the courage to reach out and try to help you. So kindness requires enormous amount of strength and kindness also requires enormous amount of honesty. A nice person might not give you feedback because it's not nice to tell you that you have something between your tooth or that you did something wrong. A kind person has the courage to tell you you have something between your teeth and it's it or or more like to provide you feedback. The you know feedback requires strength and so I think a lot of people confuse uh, that strength, that kindness, authentic kindness, the honesty that it requires. You and I share something, again, in a lighthearted way. When you were a boy, you were a magician, and so was I. How old were you when you started doing magic? For me, magic is uh, one of the most special things in the world, partly because it reminds me of my dad. When I was eight, I started like doing magic shows, and my dad started teaching me stuff, and he started buying me a couple kids, and then I started reading books, and I would do... Initially to my family and friends, eventually I would go to corporations and to bar mitzvahs and weddings and and to Teacher's Day and organize magic shows with my partner. And uh, my uncle came up with the term for me because I was in Mexico, they called me Danny. Uh, And so he said, look, you know, this great magician named Houdini, you're going to be Houdani. (laughs) And then I had my partner whose name was Jaime, Jamie. And he said, well, who am I going to be? I'll be Jaime. So it made no sense because Houdini, Houdani, but Jaime, well, it has nothing to do with Houdini. And it stuck so much. He's 54 years old and they, they still call him Jaime. <laughs> did you, did, were you getting paid for these shows at the age of eight? I mean, I think when I was eight, it was probably charity payment because I was probably like, you know, uh, not that good. But by the time I, Jaime and I were like 12 and 13 and 14, we were putting a good show and we were getting hired. And I don't think I was ever an extraordinary magician, but, you know, I, I loved it and I, I, I could entertain people. And I still do it, by the way. I, uh, I, I love it. And I started a tradition with my team at Kind and with my team at Equilibrium, my investment firm, you know, once a year I put on the show and it's one of the only things that I practice for because magic 
can be, you know, merciless. By the way, Alan, I want to ask you a question. Because I notice that a lot of us look at the craft of actors and we're like, it's just natural. But then I, I get to know some people and in every industry, people that are excellent and excel put in a ton of work to become what they became. How was it for you when you were acting? Were you, was it just coming out to just show up in the set or were you were like working really hard to try to get it right? Always working hard, always trying to figure out what my method would be on this particular job. So a lot of people are trained in a method, and that's the method they use. I was discovering my method as I went along, and it kind of changed each time I did it. But I was very much like you in that I was walking up and down Manhattan looking for a place that would hire me. <laughs> well, when was your big break? You know, it was slow small parts in plays, then large parts in plays, then small parts in movies, and then large parts. And then people became aware of me in a big way when I did MASH. I remember this movie. I should have done my research before today. I, I looked it up last time, but now I remember. There was a movie where there were two couples. Three couples would, would have been four seasons. Yes, four seasons, exactly. Oh, that's great. I'm glad you like that because I wrote that and directed it. And acted Are you serious? Yeah. I, that's one of my favorite movies. I knew you were extraordinarily smart. <laughs> you know, now I wish we could talk forever, <laughs> but, <laughs> but we're running out of time. Can we end our show with seven quick questions, generally about communication. Are you game? Sure. First question. What do you wish you really understood? <sighs> I wish I could understand... I'm, I'm sorry to be so practical because that's a question that lends itself to some beautiful answers also. But for me, what I'm really struggling with the most is how do you move people to the values and to be more curious and uh, move them for fixed positions? Because we're living through a moment where I've for years now been engaging with friends in the extremes. Like I have very passionate extreme friends on the right and on the left. And I move them an inch every year. It's it's very, very hard. And I think we all as a society need to, all of us, move to better understanding the other. And I've had a, a great difficulty understanding how the psychology of the human being, why are we so stuck to our identities and our beliefs and not able to open up and be a little bit more accepting and a little bit less judgmental. And it, it seems we're getting more rigid rather than less. And so that's a question that I ponder every day. Okay, second question. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? My natural approach is to try to, the, to find the areas where they're right and then to point out where they might be wrong. So you first say, oh, I really, on this thing, I think I really get it. I think that's a very valid point. But what about this? It sounds like this particular fact doesn't make sense for this and that reason. So, But I try to find where they're coming from and acknowledge something that to them is true or that even to me is true. And if I can find something where they actually convince me, I start with that. I say, wow, that's a really good point. I had not, I sincerely hadn't been moved on this issue and you just made me grow uh, Adam Grant talks a lot about, um, one of our fellow movement partners, he talks a lot about how the right mindset should be that, that you're that you excited when people help you realize that you were wrong mm. 
and that you can grow. Oh my God, that's your brain should be like doing some really cool gymnastics where you are challenged and, and your brain grows from you realizing that, that you haven't thought of another perspective. The other thing I would say is that my dad, when I was growing up and even when I was older, he was the best coach. He would ask me questions. Every time I would come for advice, like a good Jewish father, he would then respond with a question. And it made me think about things. It's much more effective. I'm not as good as that. I need, I'm struggling and trying every day with my children and with my colleagues to try to be a coach rather than to be expedient. I tend to be very in love with efficiency and that's not the best way to get to, to where we need to go. Okay, next question. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? It's very hard for me to answer that because for me, the word strangest question, I don't see it that way. I find when I find unusual questions, I really get excited. Like I got excited that you asked me what's the strangest question because I don't think anybody has ever asked me that question. So for me, the strangest questions are the best questions. Okay. That's good. That's good. How do you stop a compulsive talker? (laughs) Oh, my God. How, how, can you give me the answer, Helena? There's no cheating allowed. You can't look over my shoulder. <laughs> um, I have one person in my life that I can think of that I just, like, move on and just, like, interrupt, which is hor- It's a horrible response. Um, okay, this is obvious you're still working on that one. That's good. Yeah, I'm working. Now, now, that, now that I failed on that one, tell me how... Most people say I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> but that's what that, that's just something one of your tools for your toolkit that you could work yeah, on exactly is that your answer i have to go to the bathroom no i try to find something that i can say similar to what you said earlier i try to find something that i can say yes to yeah that's really interesting that's amazing you know and i would try to take back my half of the conversation but a true compulsive talker is immune to that it's pretty yeah. hard. <laughs> Too compulsive, so you, you go to the bathroom. <laughs> Let's say you're sitting at a dinner table and you're next to someone you never met before. How do you strike up a genuine conversation? I love that question, and I do have an answer. I figure it out at the moment. I never I never have pre-cooked questions. I, I mean, I start anywhere, right? You can start, but I, I'm a very curious person. I developed these skills over the last several years, I can confidently say that there is no setting where I cannot find something to be curious about. Like anywhere I go, I just start going, I just drill down rather than broad. Like wherever I go, I go one level below yon, one level below yon, and then I start finding things that I'm truly curious about mm. and I and I drill down till I discover how this person sees and does the world in a way that 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 enriches me. What gives you confidence? My children, my wife, and the human spirit. Okay, last question. What book changed your life? When I was a young person, my dad gave me a book named Mila 18 from Leon Uris. It's a novel, but it's like forging from people that fought in the Warsaw Ghetto. That had a very big impact in me, uh, in the understanding that we're not victims, 
and that we need to be protagonists and do something about injustice wherever that may exist. Well, I can see from our conversation that you've really internalized those ideas and are able to spread them among the rest of us. And I can only see good coming from that. I think you've really shown that it's possible to do. I'm so, so glad you were on the show and able to, I was able to talk to you for this amount of time. It really has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much, Daniel. Thank you, Alan. This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring this episode. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. Daniel Lubetsky was born in Mexico and emigrated to the United States at the age of 16. He founded The Kind Company in 2004, and it's now a multi-billion dollar enterprise. You can find out more about Starts With Us at startswith.us. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohaney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Karen Bakker. Her new book, The Sounds of Life, opens up a world that until recently has been entirely hidden from us. You know, humans are, we're a funny bunch. We tend to think that if we cannot observe something, we cannot perceive something, it doesn't exist. Compared with our cousins on the tree of life, humans are relatively poor listeners. A lot of the sound of nature happens in the high ultrasonic. So that's the realm of bats and dolphins and some whales and many rodents and even some of our primate cousins. At the other end, below the low end of our hearing range, is the infrasound. Those those are long, slow sound waves that are so powerful they can travel through soil and stone, even buildings. That is the realm of elephants and whales, but also thunder and tornadoes, calving glaciers make infrasound. Animals can hear many of these sounds, but we cannot. Karen Bakker, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bring spring color inside this season with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bare exclusive color Arrowhead Lake. Or a splash of Amazon Jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass. Whatever your inspiration, start your spring with durable colors that last all season with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials program, the world opened up. 
He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application.